Isaiah chapter 55. The book of Isaiah chapter 55. I just want to read two verses. Verse 8 and 9 of Isaiah 55. God speaking here said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Amen. Every kingdom in this world has its own laws and principles with which to govern itself. These are all distinctive, peculiar to each particular country or kingdom. And they are suited usually uh, to that particular uh, culture. They may be vastly different than ours. In fact, they may be alien to us. Some of them may be strange, and some of them may be fairly unacceptable to our, for instance, Western society. But to those countries, to those people, to their customs, it's quite normal and many times suitable. Therefore, it should come to no surprise to us whatsoever that God's kingdom has got its own particular distinctives its own laws and principles with which God uses in order to govern his kingdom. For example, Romans chapter 8, the spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life which is in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, the law of the spirit of life, one of the laws that governs his kingdom. In Romans 9, it talks about the law of righteousness. In James 2, it talks about the royal law of love. Now we understand, we know now that there are laws that govern faith. There are also laws that govern prayer. We did that series at the beginning of the year on prayer. We mentioned some of the laws that govern prayer. There are laws that govern giving and receiving. And then also, God has put within this world natural laws. Laws like gravity. Laws that govern the very seasons that we live in. There are very precise laws of physics and biology and electricity. There are atomic laws, agricultural laws, horticultural laws, and many, many more. And all of these, both in the spiritual world and in the physical realm that we live in, there are laws and principles which govern our lives. Now, the trouble is that because you and I knows that, particularly when it comes to spiritual things, we know that God has got certain laws. We know that God does things in certain ways. We know that God has got peculiar ways for his kingdom that no one else outside of his kingdom operates or lives in or abides by. But because we know that and we have become accustomed to that, 
there's a great danger that we pigeonhole God, that we categorize him, that we bring God down to the level of our own understanding. But sometimes God doesn't do things the way we think he ought to. Sometimes he doesn't do things the way he normally does things. Sometimes he does things completely and utterly different. And because we know, and because we live in the regular, normal laws of this kingdom, sometimes when he does something out of the boxes that we're in our thinking, we get all confused and wonder what in the world is going on here. That's not for us to think that God arbitrarily or mischievously does it in a different way just because he's tired doing it that way and wakes up someday and says, well, I think I'll just do things differently today just for a wee change. Because we're creatures of habit, aren't we? And sometimes we like a wee change. Well, God's not really like that. He just doesn't do it for those reasons. He just doesn't disregard or contradict his own laws for the fun of it. Actually, sometimes God supersedes his own laws for a higher purpose. This is what I want to talk to you about this morning. God supersedes often his own laws for a higher purpose. He does it differently for a higher purpose. Sometimes he does it not the way he usually does it, but it's for a higher purpose. For example, normally it would take a vine several months to grow grapes. Then it would have to be harvested. Then it would have to be processed into making wine. And yet we know at the marriage feast of Cana and Galilee in John 2 that Jesus in an instant turned water into wine. He just superseded all of his own natural laws. And in an instant, water turned into wine. Why did he do that? For a higher purpose. In fact, in John 2, it tells us what the higher purpose was. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory. So Jesus chose that moment, that day, to supersede all of the natural laws that he as the creator of the world put into this world for a higher purpose that his glory may be manifested, that from that moment on, that his miracle working power was released. Do you remember the children of Israel and how that they were complaining to God that they had nothing to eat, they had left Egypt? And so God miraculously started to provide them with manna, this strange substance that tasted like coriander seed, that was wafer-like, color of bedelium, it says. Angel's food, the Bible calls it. And God says, all you got to do is every morning, remember they're out in the desert, every morning when the dew is on the ground, if you go out, you'll find the ground will be covered in this manna. Manna means literally, what is it? Because when they looked at it, it says, what is it? Which is where we get the word manna from. And so all they had to do was go out every single morning and collect this. 
But he gave them specific instructions. He says, you're only to collect so much per day for you and for your family. That's all. And if you collect more than that and you hoard it up, it won't last. What you hoard up will breed worms and it will stink. So don't do that. But on the Sabbath day, you cannot gather it, but you won't need to because on the day before the Sabbath, I will allow you to gather twice as much so you don't have to go out on the Sabbath day. And it won't breed worms and stink on that particular day. So God was superseding again all those laws that he had put in to Moshe. And even that day, that one day, he superseded, he reversed that law just for them, for a higher purpose. What was the higher purpose? To teach them faith and to teach them obedience. Because when you're out in the desert and you get this food free, you want to go and hoard some. You think, well, if I could just collect enough, I wouldn't have to go out tomorrow. I could lie on in the morning. I wouldn't have to get up at dawn when the, you know, when the Jews there. I could just lie on, sleep in bed. And that would appeal to a lot of people in here, wouldn't it? But God says, no. But you've got to trust me every single day. And if you don't trust me, it won't work. So, God does this from time to time for a higher purpose. Remember in Romans 8, remember the Roman, Matthew, sorry, 8, the Roman centurion in Matthew 8, he came to Jesus asking him to come and to heal his servant. And Jesus said, I will come. Now, once he said that, the centurion said, well, you don't really need to come, just speak the word. But when Jesus says, I will come, that would be what you would expect Jesus to do, would it not? I mean, that's what everybody would expect him to do. Because everywhere he went, he just healed people. He came. People requested he would go. And, and you wouldn't expect any less from the master than if he asked him to come, that he would come. That would be the normal thing to do for him. That would be the normal way. That would be his custom. Could you put it that way? However, have we mentioned it last week? However, Whenever Mary and Martha, when Lazarus was dying and they sent for Jesus, he wouldn't come. And it says when he got the word, he abode still two days in that place. He deliberately, consciously would not come until Lazarus had died. And we said last week how angry and confused and upset they were because he would not come. That was so unlike Jesus, wasn't it? They couldn't understand that. It just didn't seem like his nature to do that. It seemed so out of character. They just could not believe that he wouldn't come. But he didn't go until Lazarus died. Four days, then Jesus raised him. A higher purpose is obvious, isn't it? To show himself as the resurrection and the life. And thank God he did. Because that's the great hope of the Christian church, isn't it? That whenever we die, that we will rise again in newness of life. Because he is our resurrection hope. Now you remember how that Jesus, how that the disciples were in the boat and Jesus was asleep on the pillow and how the storm arose 
And the disciples got very, very, very afraid. Now, these were hardened fishermen, most of them. But this was a real storm. And, and they realized that it looked like the ship was going to sink. They were going to lose their lives. And they woke Jesus. Master, do you not care that we're perishing? You remember how he rebuked the wind and the waves? And they calmed the storm. And then he rebuked them. He said, where is your faith? And the implication was, they didn't have to waken him up, that they could rebuke the storm. Where is your faith? But away in Acts 27, the Apostle Paul, as a prisoner, going to appeal unto Caesar in Rome because he had Roman citizenship and he could do that, but he was a prisoner nonetheless. He was on board this ship and a terrible storm arose. A great tempest, the Bible calls it. And it went on for days. And, and I mean, everybody was frightened. And the Apostle Paul took time to pray and to seek the Lord. And the Lord came to him and spoke to him. And he told him the ship he was on would be shipwrecked. But that every single soul on board, if they would stay on board, because the captain of the ship and the centurions, they wanted to actually, to, <laughs> rather than these fellows maybe swim for shore at some point to kill them, but Paul says, no, unless everybody stays on board. But if everybody stays on board, God has assured me we'll make it. And you know, they did make it safe to land. Some on board, some in broken pieces of the ship, but they eventually, all, every soul on board made it to land. But when the Lord came to Paul, did you notice he didn't rebuke him for his lack of faith? He didn't turn around and say, well, well what are you praying to me for? Why didn't you stand up and just rebuke it? Because in fact, that's what he told his disciples. But in this case, God had a higher purpose. And even though they had to go through the storm, and even though they were shipwrecked, and even though it seemed to be they just made it by the skin of their teeth on the land and pieces of broken board and debris, but they made it. And do you know what? They landed in Malta. And they stayed there, Paul stayed there for three months, and he had a tremendous revival in Malta. People were getting hated, people were coming to Christ. See, that was the higher purpose. God wanted them there. And he wanted those people to see the power of God and to hear the gospel of Christ. Sometimes it takes more faith to ride out the storm than it does to calm it. Do you hear me? Sometimes it takes more faith to stay in the boat like Paul than to get out of it like Peter. When you're in the storm and your boat is about to break up and everything in you wants to get out of there, it takes a lot of faith to stay on board. It takes a lot of obedience sometimes to stay on board the ship when everything in you wants to get out. When life is pressing you and the difficulties are squeezing, sucking the very life out of you, it's hard sometimes just to stay on board 
But God often has got a higher purpose for us. Sometimes it takes just as much faith to say like Caleb, give me this mountain, or to say mountain be thou removed. Sometimes it just takes as much faith to say, give me this mountain. Let me fight those giants, because that's what Caleb was saying. Oh, there's giants there, but oh God, give them to me. I want to fight them, because I want this mountain. Do you ever think of that wee scripture in Isaiah 40? In verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. To those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young man shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let me ask you, which of those three do you think would be the hardest? Rise up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, or walk and not faint. I say the last one. Because rising up with wings like eagles is those times, would to God we get them every day, but we don't. Those times when we seem to just catch the wind of the Spirit and it rises us up above and it's effortless. You know, the eagle doesn't flap its wings very much. It just hits the thermals and it just spreads the wings and it allows the wind to do the work for it. There are those times in the Spirit when our wings are spread and it's the Spirit that just bows, we're bowed up by the wind of the Spirit. Then there are those times when we run and we're not weary. Remember like Elijah, when the Spirit of God came on him and he outran the chariots of Ahab? That was beyond his capabilities, way beyond it, but the Spirit of God came on him and gave him new life and new energy and new power in that occasion, at that moment. I contend it's the last one's the toughest one. They shall walk and not faint. Walking is so every day, isn't it? It's, it's just so one foot after the other, isn't it? Every single day, every day, every week, every month, every year, a lifetime of walking one step at a time. And I contend that's the most difficult part. That's when you're tempted to faint. When it seems to be nothing's changing and everything looks the same and you still have to ply on every single day. That's when you feel like fainting. But if we wait upon the Lord, then he shall renew our strength. And he'll give us the strength to walk every single day. Paul wanted the thorn to be removed. Now, you can be sure when Paul prayed for that thorn to be removed, you can be sure that Paul prayed fervently. He prayed passionately. 
He probably fasted and prayed. He did everything he knew. He probably prayed every kind of prayer he possibly could pray. And he prayed three times, forcefully, for God to remove the thorn. And God said, no. My grace will be more than enough for you in this thing. See, that was his higher purpose. That Paul would understand a facet of God's grace that up to that time maybe he didn't understand. You know, we, we put Paul in the spiritual superman bracket, but you know, every superman has a kryptonite moment, hasn't he? And Paul had those two, and this is one of them. Because he was just flesh and blood like you and me. And he didn't want this any more than anybody else. That's why he cried unto God three times, and God says, no. No, I'm not going to remove it. I'm just going to give you broader shoulders. I'm just going to give you more grace. Peter talks about the manifold grace of God, the multifaceted grace of God, the many-sided grace of God. There's a grace for whatever you're going through right now. There's a grace for it. Specially tailor-made for your situation. There's a grace for it. And God needs us to experience his grace in many, many ways. Do you remember Paul and Silas and they were in the Philippian prison. And how at midnight, how they had been beaten, put in stocks, and at midnight they sang and they prayed unto God and there was a tremendous earthquake. And the whole jail was shaken and every door was flung open and suddenly they could go free if they so desired. And it was a wonderful situation. And I mean, the jailer, because he was under the threat of death, if he lost any prisoners, I mean, he was absolutely convinced. He, he, I mean, he, he was about to commit suicide, in fact. And Paul says, do yourself no harm, we're all here. And he gets saved in his whole household. What a tremendous story. But I also read about Paul in a prison in Rome. I, actually, it was under house arrest. He was a prisoner in Rome. He was there for about three years. And there was no earthquake at midnight. And there was no angel appeared. And there was no supernatural sign. He was just there. For a long time. Now he had a little bit of freedom in that friends could come and see him, but he was literally under house arrest. He was confined to a certain quarter. But God had a higher purpose, you see. You know what his higher purpose was? Sitting on your lap. Four books. Four prison epistles, they're called. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Four of the greatest books of the New Testament all born out of that time under house arrest. It gave him time. It gave him motivation. He couldn't do anything else. He was stuck there. But he used it wisely. And the Spirit of God inspired him to write. And he was writing letters. And after 2,000 years, 
They're sitting on your lap today, those same letters that he wrote from house arrest. That was God's higher purpose. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, he talks about it here. In verse 12, see, Paul believed in God's higher purposes. Verse 12 of Philippians 1, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. He said, what has happened to me? He said, after a while, even the very palace guard were thinking, hey, this is, there's something in this. There's a reason for this. He says it was even obvious to them. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So you see, there's a spin-off from what is happening. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife. Some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. But the latter, out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I will rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to the earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by my life or by my death, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. See, Paul had a mentality. He had an attitude. And it was, if this doesn't work out the way I think I would like it to, or perhaps the way I think it ought to, well, maybe God has got a higher purpose. Maybe there's another reason for this that I just don't quite see just yet. And thank God for that period of incarceration because it has left us a tremendous legacy. The church is wonderful. And you read, those, you read those epistles and you look at them, think of the background to them. And think of how God maneuvered him and got him into that place of confinement. And he had all of that time and he put it to good use and God inspired him. And what a legacy he left the church. In Acts chapter 13, there's two little stories here. There's one in Acts 13. We'll have a little look at first. And this is regarding Paul and Barnabas. Uh, in verse 4, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia. And there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found certain, a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Let me just give you a little bit of background here. You understand that Romans, of course, were 
pagans, highly superstitious, worshipped lots of gods. Now this proconsul Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. Uh, so you can be sure this was a man who was a reader, a man who'd be interested in history, and a man who would be sent by the Romans into that territory who quite naturally would want to know the customs and the habits and the culture of the people that he's ruling over. Now, being a pagan and being very superstitious, usually high-ranking officials, they would have somebody around them, uh, uh, an astrologer, a prognosticator, somebody to tell them the future, somebody to give them some, somebody to read the runes, somebody to give them some kind of a guidance. And he had this guy who was a Jew, a false prophet, a sorcerer, but he was a Jew. Why a Jew? Well, lots of Jews live in those days, but, you know, the Jews had a history of, of, of being prophets. The, I mean, the Old Testament, there's a, there's a long track record of great prophets in the Old Testament. And this man would be aware of this. And so here's this Jew who's claiming to be a prophet, and he takes him on board. He's in his court, as it were. He's part of the retinue he has there, part of the staff. But then this man... He hears about two other Jews who's in the area, Barnabas and Saul. And he sought to hear the word of God. So here's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk. This man has, I mean, he spies everywhere. He's near to the ground everywhere. So he knows there's stuff going on out there. There's a bit of a shaking going on out there. I need to hear these fellows. They've got something to say. I'm curious to know what they've got to say. They say it's the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul also, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease from perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. Paul here is exercising his apostolic power and authority right here. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone who would lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord." Now notice here how Paul acts very, very quickly. He's got an opportunity to preach the gospel to this high-ranking Roman official to impact his life. And he wasn't about to let this old, lying, conniving prophet, so-called, upset his moment. And immediately by the power of the Spirit, and Paul's very sparing in these things, but immediately he rebukes him and says, you're going to be blind. The Lord is going to strike you right now, and he did, and he was blind. Boy, I tell you, that pro that sure got his attention, didn't it? Things that guess happened in the New Testament, didn't they? Remember Peter, Ananias and Sapphira? If it happened to these things today, I tell you, we would be, hmm, a bit scary, wouldn't it? So, that was immediate, it happened, there was an impact, immediate impact. Now, nip over to chapter 16 of Acts. And just after, sort of from verse 
11 down to verse 15 tells a story of how uh, Paul and Silas, and it's Paul, not Paul and Barnabas, it's Paul and Silas, how that they had met Lydia down at the river and told her the ways of the Lord. And she begged them to stay with them for some time. And so she persuaded us, it says in verse 15. But verse 16, that happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So she must have been writing good at it. This probably was the most famous, the most prolific, the most successful fortune-teller in the whole area. And of course it was a demon in her that was doing it. So this girl followed Paul and us, and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. Note that. The next verse says, Paul was greatly annoyed. You can be sure he was annoyed from day one. From the moment that devil opened his mouth, you can be sure Paul was annoyed. He was agitated in his spirit. Now, you may wonder, why in the world would that evil spirit, why would it cry out? Because what, what it was saying was true. These were men of God. These were going to show the way of the Lord. But why would it do that? Well, there's two, there's two thoughts on that. First of all, maybe it was saying it mockingly, disparagingly. Oh, these are the great men of God. Let's all bow down to them. Maybe in that kind of mocking, disparaging tone. Or maybe the Spirit realized, because devils know a thing or two, we're in trouble because Paul's in town. Remember the sons of Sceva who tried to cast devils out? They jumped on the man, beat him up, and they said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? So they knew Paul. So maybe the Spirit, hey, we're in trouble. So what we'll do is we'll get alongside Paul here. You know, we'll, we'll try to go on an equal level with him then. So, so we'll say the truth. These are the great men of God that come to show us the ways of the Lord. And then whenever they do that, well, even though people look to us before, now they may look at them, but at least they'll look at us on an equal level because after all, we told the truth. Before they ever said who they were, we told you who they were. So maybe the devil is trying to be sneaky here. He said, well, why did Paul just not rebuke her immediately? Well, maybe he was a little bit concerned that because this young woman was good at her job and she was bringing much gold to her masters and maybe he was a bit concerned. Well, we're only in the town because everywhere Paul went, there was a riot or a revival. It's usually sometimes both. So maybe a little bit concerned. We'll do something too quickly here. I mean, there'll be such an uproar. We haven't even started yet. We haven't even got sharing yet. But he was greatly annoyed, it says. And he held his peace for many days, it tells us. For many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, finally, it says, he's greatly annoyed, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw that her hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities and brought them to the magistrates and said, These men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. 
And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans to us to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. But at midnight, so there we're back to that story. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Prisoners were listening and there was a great earthquake. And the jailer and his family all got saved that night. And he baptized them. And Lydia just before we read the story about the spirit of divination, she gets saved. And there is the nucleus of the church at Philippi that he's writing to here. There's the nucleus. There's the birth of it. There's the birth of the Christian church in Europe. We are Europeans. So there was the birth of the church in Europe. So when God does things differently, but he does things that are not the normal way of doing it, and he does it in a different time and in a different way, there's a higher purpose for it. And that was a higher purpose. Now we know that Joseph was allowed by God to be sold into slavery, but what was it for? A higher purpose. That his family may be saved. And through his family being saved, that a nation may be saved. And through a nation may be saved, that Messiah would come through that nation. All of that time, just that Messiah would come, that a family, that a nation, that a deliverer would come. And God has got higher purposes for our lives too. The quick release, the easy way out. How we love that, but it's not always God's preferred option. Sometimes God just does it differently. And remember, if he chooses another way and another time, it's for his glory and it's for our good. So we can't lose either way. Lazarus was dead four days. But look what glory came out of that. Paul was shipwrecked. But he landed in Malta for three months. Look what glory God got out of that. Joseph was 13 years in Egypt before Pharaoh ever had his dream. But look what glory God got out of that. Hannah's barrenness was not God denying her, but God delaying her. Do you understand that? He wasn't denying Hannah. <coughs> He was delaying her. It was a tough time for Hannah because her husband had another wife, Panina, and she used every minute to goad her and to revile her and to get at her and to slag her off, as we would say, because she was having kids, but Hannah wasn't. And it was a tough time for Hannah. Hard time. Remember when she was praying in the temple? She said, I'm in bitterness of soul here. I'm really, really upset and I'm desperately praying for a man child. And God let that go on for years and years and years and years. But there was a higher purpose. 
There's a little verse in Acts 13. I was just reading it the other night. <clears throat> in verse 20, Paul given a little talk here and sort of given a little pot of history of Israel. And then in verse 20 he says, After that he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterwards they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Now, Hannah's barrenness was not God denying her, God delaying her. Whenever Samuel was born, he was born at the most crucial, pivotal time in Israel's history. Because they had been in the longest, darkest era of their lives. The time of the Judges. You read the book of Judges. It was an awful time for them. They were in captivity over and over and over again. Then God would raise up a judge. He would deliver them. And then they would go back to their old foreign gods. They'd be in captivity again. The Philistines would come in. They would take them over. Then they would cry unto God. And that went on for years, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Then God came to Hannah that day in the temple. Said, now's the time. Now's the time. You're going to have a son. Nine months later, little Samuel was born. She gave him back to the Lord because she promised him, didn't she? And now he's probably about 12. He's working in the temple. God comes to him and gives him a mighty prophecy. For a 12, 13-year-old boy, it was mighty. All ears in Israel would tingle at it. Now, two things were happening here. God was making a transition from judges to kings. Because it says in the very last chapter, of the very last verse of the book of Judges, that at that time, that every man did what was right in his own sight. And God was transitioning, and then they cried unto God, give us a king like other nations. So God transitioned them from judges to kings. He also transitioned them from priests to prophets. And Samuel was the last judge, and he was the first prophet. Now Moses was a prophet, but he was more a lawgiver than a prophet. But in the line of prophets that was to come, Samuel was the one who would start the school of the prophets, by the way, be carried on by Elijah, but Samuel was the one who kicked it off. And so he was born in a pivotal, crucial time in the history of Israel. That was a transitional time between judges and kings, between priests and between prophets. Now the kings that would come up, it wouldn't be the priests dealing with them, it would be the prophets who would deal with them. And you can read that in the books of Kings. You can read that. Did you get that point? And so Hannah waited and waited and waited and was frustrated and sometimes was angry and wept and cried and God held and held and held and held and held. And to her it seemed cruel. And she was being mocked all the time in her own very household. But God had got a higher purpose. And sometimes we get through some stuff that's not that pleasant. And sometimes we've got to look up and say, God, I, I don't fully understand what's going on here. I'm doing my best to trust you and to love you and to serve you. I, I don't fully understand, but I'm going to trust you anyway. Because maybe, just maybe you've got a higher purpose for me. 
So what have you gone through today? Tough to understand? Deeply disappointed? Perhaps angry with God? Don't know what's going on. What are you doing, God? What are you playing at? You know, I thought you would do this, and I thought you would do that, and I thought you'd do that, I haven't done any of those things. And I, I've run out of ideas, I don't know what you're going to do, I don't know what I'm going to do. Is that where you are today? Most Christians, at one time or another, to one degree or another, find themselves in that very place. And in those moments, when you can't understand it, and everything's falling apart, but you don't know what's going on, look up to God and say, God, as best I know, I love you, I'm following you, I'm serving you, but I can't understand any of this. But you understand it. Because you know the end from the beginning. You see the big picture. I can't see it. I can only see one piece of the jigsaw at a time. In fact, Lord, I can't even see the picture. The box is turned all the way around. I can't see anything anymore. But Lord, you put it together. I'll just trust you for the higher purpose in life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us to rest in you. When we can't see, when we don't know, when we don't feel, when we're confused, sometimes angry, upset, Lord, help us to trust in you because you know us. And you've got our future planned. And Lord, even if the enemy has come in and he's wrecked havoc with our lives at the moment, Lord, your plans for us, they're good. They're not for evil. They're to give us a hope and a future. So Lord, help us to look to your word and trust your Holy Spirit and just lean on you every day that your greater purposes will be fulfilled in our lives. And Lord, should it take a lifetime, so be it. We're not going back. We're not giving up. We're going to continue going forward in Christ trusting the Lord all the days of her life. In Jesus' name. Ken's going to come and just lead us in communion.